Luke 2. And let's read from verse 8 to verse 14. Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. This is the reading of God's Word. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the open fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Let's pray together. Lord, we've joined the angelic choir. We've sung our Gloria. Glory to God in the highest. And not simply there in Bethlehem. But in the Bethlehem of our lives. We sing glory to God in the highest. We rejoice and fear not. For a Savior has come. Who is Christ the Lord. For those who don't know you, Lord, use this service to bring them to your son, Jesus Christ, that they would, as all of us have, gather, as it were, around the manger and bow the knee. And Lord, take us to Calvary, where from womb to tomb, we bow the knee. From cradle to the grave, we bow at Calvary's hill. Lord, use your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often read in scripture of the angels worshiping in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Glory we read in Isaiah chapter 6. The angelic host gathered in choir in heaven in the very throne room of God. And they're singing and they're crying out their hallelujahs to the fullness of their angelic capabilities and capacities at the top of their lungs, if you will. And according to scripture, that sight is relatively common. It's not rare to find the angels and their hosts praising God in heaven, but it is relatively rare to see the angelic hosts singing their hallelujahs on earth. Their voice, you see, Their voices, their praises are reserved for God alone. And coming from the world of glory down into this fallen world, friends, there's not much to sing about. A world sullied by sin and darkened by the depravity of fallen man. A groaning creation, the New Testament says. A creator-hating, God-hating humanity. Friends, I don't want to put a damper on your Christmas, I don't. But if you see with eyes to see, there there is not a lot to sing about down here on earth. And so rarely, rarely do we see the angels worshiping on earth. Unless God is there. 
Unless, of course, Emmanuel has come. Unless, of course, Christ the Lord has come. Unless, of course, God incarnate comes into the world of men as light into darkness. Then, you see, then the angelic hosts cannot help but to declare their praises, their glories to God in the highest. And the place, you see, whether here on earth or there in the world of glory, the place is rather insignificant. Inasmuch as the angels ever live to magnify praise and sing to God and to God alone. And if he, namely the Lord, come into the world, we ought not to be shocked by the host of angels that's trailing just behind them. The herald angels who appear, not only with a message, not only with a message, but to sing praise to God most high, glory to God, all glory in the highest. Unless we get caught up with the angels or the angelic, as many people do. Let's be reminded of the message of the angels, which when we receive and accept, we will not be able to contain our praises, and we, like they, will ever live to magnify, praise, and sing to God, and to God alone in Christ, because of Christ and what he's done, and for the glory of Christ alone. Now, I don't want you to be distracted by the angels, but I would like for a moment to assume their perspective. Are you ready? I want to assume the perspective of the angelic, the angel's perspective, so that we might join their choir rather than being distracted by it. Mind you, the angels are created beings. Angels are finite creatures created for the glory of their creator. And so they fulfill a specific purpose and design. They are finite creatures now, think with finite capacities and potentialities. And now, while different than ours, obviously, they are finite nonetheless. And creature, even as we are. Like us, they too learn. They are not omniscient. Like us, they too can rejoice. They too are surprised and marvel. And they too exercise a curiosity of sorts. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. The righteousness of God. A few verses as we explore, so keep your finger there in Luke chapter 2. We're going to flip now to Luke 15, and we think then of the parables that Jesus gives in Luke 15, the parables of the lost and the found. Luke 15, turn with me to Luke 15. And let's read. And you know the context here? A man loses... Well, he loses the sheep, and so he goes to find it. And then in verse 7, he rejoices. And Jesus says this, Just as the lost sheep is found, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And then he goes on to give a parable about a woman who loses a coin. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And look what he says in verse 10. Likewise, Jesus now, drawing the point out of the parable, I say to you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
In other words, the angels experience joy. Their state is altered in as much as they rejoice and experience joy. And joy greater still over one sinner, over one sinner who repents down here on earth. Now, why does that make them happy? What's the deal? Turn with me to Hebrews then. Hebrews chapter 1. Why are they rejoicing, these angels, over a sinner who repents? What do they have to do with sinners? Hebrews chapter 1. At the end of the chapter, verse 14, the author of Hebrews, Paul, in comparing the angels to Christ, says in verse 14, Are they not all, referring to the angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The author of Hebrews is saying this, the angels, they're nothing more than couriers sent forth with a message. They're servants. They're servants created to minister to those who would inherit salvation. In other words, God made them so that they might serve those who would be saved, us us, friends. God made them to serve the saints, to minister to us, to all who would, the text says, inherit salvation. And so we see them often in scripture announcing the will of God for the benefit of his people, instructing, protecting, ministering to the heirs of salvation. And so they rejoice and experience joy increasing when one sinner repents for their whole purpose is fulfilled when the heirs of salvation receive their salvation, you see. They rejoice because their whole purpose is fulfilled. God is glorified in the salvation of one and every sinner. Now turn with me to Peter, First Peter. You know, there's a lot of scripture today. Yes, a lot of flipping. I love the sound of pages turning in the congregation looking into God's word and not necessarily to the preacher's word. First Peter. So just, it's right after Hebrews, you go, keep going past Hebrews, you hit James, and then you'll see Peter. First Peter. Chapter 1. Peter in declaring, verse 3, the blessedness of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the glories of salvation, which, verse 10, the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets, they longed to look into these. They were searching carefully and diligently. They prophesied of the grace that would come after them. And look at verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They were looking for and waiting for the fullness of time. Late in time, behold him come offspring of the virgin's womb. They looked forward to Messiah. And look what it says in verse 12. To them, the prophets who looked forward to the day, it was revealed that not to themselves. So God revealed to them that it wouldn't be them. To them it was revealed that not to them, but to us. They were ministering the things which we 
have now or which have now been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They were ministering to us, the Old Testament prophets. They're ours. What are these things? The things of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ as fully revealed, the fullness of our redemption in Christ. We are the generation who then received and declare that message and all before longed and searched diligently and studied. But look at the end of the verse. Peter says this, the things which angels desire to look into. Did you hear that? <laughs> I don't know why the Christian world is so obsessed with angels. What's funny is they're obsessed with ours. They long to look into the very things we participate in and experience. Now, why, though? Why do they long to look into and understand? Why do they desire to see and know those things which we possess and understand? Why is their curiosity piqued, if you will? Because the angels are not designed to experience salvation, you see. Angels cannot be saved. They were not created to be redeemed, but simply to minister to the redeemed, to us, you see. And so the grace and mercy of God is in many ways to them a mystery. So when they see it, they rejoice in it and in the glory that it reveals. The glorious mystery, if you will, for them. While they know the grace of God, they cannot experience the grace of God at least not as we do. They cannot experience the grace of God as we do in our salvation. And thus, they're anxious, you see. They're anxious to minister to us, to those who do know and have experienced the grace and salvation of God. Again, why do they rejoice in salvation? Why do they long to look into these things, as Peter says? Because they love learning about and praising God for who He is. And in the gospel, His mercy and grace they're revealed, and also his wrath and his hatred for sin. And so, as God is revealed in the salvation of the sinner, they rejoice. They rejoice. They're made for these things, namely to minister these things to us. They love learning about and praising God. And I imagine that the angels who are in heaven surrounding the throne of God, I would like to imagine that while they look into the face of glory, I imagine that they rejoice because they watch him rejoicing. They see him rejoicing over one sinner who repents here on earth. Can you imagine the joy of infinite God? I mean, that sets their feet to dancing in heaven. Even as at the creation, when God looked over his work and saw that it was good. Therefore, it comes as no surprise to see the angels swarming, as it were, to Bethlehem to catch a glimpse of incarnate God, the fullness of God in helpless babe. They came to feast their angelic eyes upon God's salvation incarnate. They were there both to marvel and to deliver a message. 
Hark the herald angels sing. They came heralding a message, you see, ministering, as it were, to those who would inherit salvation, all of us. So turn back with me to Luke chapter 2, and let's pick up Luke chapter 2. They came with a message, heralding a message, good tidings of great joy, which would be, and I love this little phrase, to all peoples. And so we hear the Abrahamic covenant expressed again, I will make you a blessing to the families of the earth. And now, even in Mary's song, the promises that were made to the fathers, to Abraham, for God to show his mercy. And so here, good tidings, verse 10, and great joy, which will be to all people, because it is their joy to gaze upon the salvation of God and to participate in it, not as recipients, but as servants and messengers. And what's more, the angels are instinctually and reflexively drawn to God. So that when Christ the Lord comes to earth, and when Christ the Lord, when the second of the person of the Trinity incarnates, the angels are drawn like a moth to a flame. There's an instinctual and reflexive craving for the angels to be where God is. And if you're a Christian today, then you know what I'm talking about. This magnetic longing for God to know him and to be with him and to worship him. Now, can you imagine just for a second before we return to Luke 2, we've got to get there. But can you imagine what it must have been like on the other side of eternity to be in heaven, okay? Worshiping God, the angels, and endless eternities. And that before, before the incarnation, before Christ came into the world. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Before God sends his son, where the heavenly hosts sang their hallelujahs to the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worshiped for endless and eternities. And then can you imagine with me what it must have been like to see God the Father commission his son into the mission field, into the fallen world, whereby the unbroken fellowship of the Trinity, in that glorious throne, God sends him down into the world into a womb, into the womb of a lowly virgin, a sinner named Mary. Friends, friends, the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead ought to blow your finite mind. Can you imagine the glorious, if I can make up a word, perplexion of the angels? As creator becomes creature? As the fullness of God, uncontainable, born into the world as a child, as a baby. Oh, the mysteries of the incarnation, friends. What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? So then we return to our text in Luke 2. Look at verse 8. Shepherds are out in the open field. They're working the graveyard shift, as it were keeping watch over their flocks. The sound of silence, you can imagine with me now, interrupted by the occasional bleeding of sheep. Lambs that were most likely being farmed for Passover. Passover lambs, sacrificial lambs. The purple skies stretched out over the hill country of Bethlehem. The flocks all huddled together in the cool of night to maintain body heat. 
The shepherd's a class of vagabond, nomadic herdsmen, low-class, dirty, blue-collar, rough-necked wanderers. And friends, it ought to humble us that the angels appeared to them and not to the dignitaries or the kings and nobles, the religious elite of Israel, but to the despised, nobody, ignoble shepherds who are out there now in the middle of night keeping watch over the flocks where once upon a midnight dreary as they pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore while they nodded nearly napping suddenly there came an angel of the Lord verse 9 standing before them as they the shepherds were surrounded by the glory of the Lord. Not the glory of angels, mind you, or even the host of angels, but the very glory of the glorious one is what the text says. The glory of the Lord, verse 9, shone around them, which makes me think he was there. Even as he was with Moses, the shepherd. And the text reads that they're greatly afraid. Literally, the repetition of the word. They feared with a great fear with an exceeding fear, the kind of glory and majesty that makes you fear for your life, yea, the kind of power and magnificence that brings you to the point of death. And while the angel himself was no doubt scary, because you think the angels are chubby little winged babies with little, no, that's, that's not what an angel looks like. When angels show up on the scene in scripture, people are deathly afraid and they think they're going to die. And so while the angel himself was scary enough, I'm convinced that it was the glory of the Lord that produced the kind of fear that's spoken of here. And I thought to myself, I was preparing this sermon out there in the tree in San Diego. I thought to myself, angels appear, the glory of the Lord shone around them. The shepherds are, oh my God, this is, uh, what were the sheep doing? The angels appear, I wonder if they got scared and scattered or in their holy little huddle they just, Get away from the glory, right? What are the sheep doing? And, and I'd like to think that perhaps they drew near. While shepherds fall on their faces in fear, the sheep are drawn into the glory of his presence. And look at verse 10. The angel says, don't be afraid. I mean, really. <laughs> Can you imagine the shepherds? Well, what are we supposed to do? Hey, guys, thanks for coming out here. We're cold and lonely. Thanks for showing up. Uh, don't be afraid. I mean, give me a break. Fear is entirely appropriate. And yet they're commanded not to fear. And here's the reason that's given. For behold, don't fear because I bring good tidings of great joy. I bring you a message. The hope of fallen humanity a blessing to the families of the earth. So don't miss the point this Christmas, friends. Don't miss the point here. It's not the angels. It's not the shepherds. Or even the glory that shone around them, per se. The point of the passage is the message of the angels. So the point of Christmas, beloved, is the message of Christ, the message of the gospel. And what's more, the point of Christmas is the person and the work of Christ, a savior, the text says, the savior who is Christ the Lord. Friends, the angels know why he's come. The shepherds know. Mary and Joseph know why he's come. 
I imagine that even the mindless sheep know. But do you know? Do you know why he's come into the world? Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. He came, Matthew 1.21, to save his people from their sins. And the operative question is, are you his people? And so here in Luke 2, in the flow of narrative, if you were to jump into the world of scripture, surround the manger, Luke would take hold of your hand and bring you to the Savior. And in the flow of gospel narrative, he would put your hand in the hand of Christ. And Christ would walk with you through his life and his teaching. You will believe what he said. And you will believe in who he was. And his work. His accomplished work. Whereby he will lead you to Calvary's hill. Redemption hill. And it is as we sing, man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Barren shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Friends, as we consider the incarnation, we can't help but to think of the crucifixion. From cradle as I prayed to the grave. From womb to tomb. Yes, yes, he came to save his people from their sins. But the question again is, are you his people? Do you know him? And you need not worry yourself about, well, I don't know if I'm predestined by God or elect of God. For by confessing your sins and turning to Christ as Lord and Savior, trusting in his work, his life, death, and resurrection, his ascent, trusting in Christ and Christ alone for the atonement and the forgiveness of your sins, if that be true of you, as we sang, in Christ alone my hope is found, then you can be sure that you are his people. That he came for the likes of you to deliver you from your sin. So that even at the incarnation, the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Friends, look with me at verse 11. I read this, and sometimes I just take a step back and look at words. And you know what? The word born and the word Lord should never ever be used in the same sentence. And that to the same person. But you see, they do here. The glorious mystery of incarnate God. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Can I read from our doctrinal statement? Hear this. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God is as follows. The Son of God, quote, this is from our doctrinal statement. Please read it. The Son of God took on a fully human nature and yet without sin, so that two whole and perfect distinct natures were inseparably joined together into one person. Thus, the person of Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Not God and man, but rather the God-man representing humanity and deity 
an indivisible oneness. Oh, the glory of the incarnation. The mystery of mysteries here in the incarnation. If he were not man, then he could not intercede on our behalf. And if he were only man, then his perfect life would have only sufficed for the salvation of one other person. But as God-man, he could die for the many, you see, since the life of the living God is inexhaustible and so more than sufficient to pay for the souls of a multitude. The fullness of God. Look at verse 12. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. The, the infinite, uncontainable God wrapped in swaddling clothes. Laid in a manger, once upon a throne, now laid in a feeding trough, as it were. And so the angels cannot help at that moment but to burst on the scene from the realm of the unseen, a multitude of heavenly hosts. Can you imagine? Covering the hills of Bethlehem, purple skies, and the fields were transformed then into this open-air chapel where God's heavenly choir sang out, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Peace on earth toward men of goodwill. Why? For the Prince of Peace has come. Not to issue world peace. That's not why he came. But to reconcile sinners to God. So that we might have peace with God. And that's why we sing. That's why the angels sing. You who were once at war with God. We who were once children of wrath by nature. Opposed to God and his gospel. Have as of late been brought near by the blood of Christ and the work of his cross. Would you turn with me to end in Romans chapter 5? Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.1. And understand then, peace on earth. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace on earth with God through our Lord. Jesus Christ. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. And after I pray, I'll invite you to stand and we're going to sing the power of the cross. Oh, to see the dawn. As we do the adoration. In song, let's pray. Lord, for those who don't have peace with you yet, I pray that you would bring them to Christ. And here now, from our text, from the manger to Golgotha, Lord, I pray that they would hear and understand the gospel and fall on their knees declaring a king is born. And more than simply living a diable life, 
He is king eternal, never to die again. And so we as citizens in that kingdom will rise. Lord, we thank you for all that you are in Christ Jesus on our behalf. Help us now to sing and to sing of the gospel that we so love and that saves us. Not a message, but a person. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.